Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer and set of offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. It sounds silly, but, you know, taking care of physicality, right? Getting physical, getting outdoors to the physical world, eating well and sleeping. And I mean, controlling it like meditation. I love the fact that you guys, you really push into meditation because yeah. controlling the mind is very important, I think, and to be a great operator, to be a person that lives their life in the moment. But I just went back to those things. You know, mm -hmm. I got outside, I got nutrition, I ran, I was running because running is my thing. Even though I'm a big guy. I was running about 150, 200 miles a month and I was shaking. I figured if I'm going to have bad feelings and all these weird things going on in my brain. If it's going to follow me, it's going to exhaust it when it gets there, right? <laughs> and I just used it. Because, you know, when you're exhausted, it's hard to be in, a, in this fight or flight mode. Hey, folks, this is Mark Devine with the Unbeatable Mind Podcast. Welcome back. Thanks so much for being here. Super stoked to have you. I appreciate your time and attention. And as you've heard me say before, I do not take it lightly. I've got a billion things vying for your attention. The fact that you're here listening to this is a big deal to me. And I'm humbled. All right, my guest today, Iron Ed Heiner. Man, I love talking to uh, teammates. It's just so cool. Let me give you a, a quick background on Ed, and we'll get right into it. So Ed retired as lieutenant commander. He saw nine deployments, nine major deployments, five different continents, fought in three separate wars. That's uncommon. Twice awarded the Bronze Star with Valor. He's now a coach and consultant, specializing in leadership development, team building. He's got his MSEL from the University of San Diego, a program I know well. He's passionate about helping people learn entrepreneurship, what he calls sealpreneurship, which is like probably mentally tough entrepreneurship and working with juveniles and kids who maybe don't have access to that kind of mindset training. So his purpose then shifted from making money and being in business and doing consulting to where now he's working with underprivileged kids and helping them develop mental toughness. And he's partnering, looks like with Tony Robbins on that and with large home building companies. So fascinating, fascinating work. It's a great interview. You're going to love it. Hooyah. First ever Navy SEAL to be spot promoted during the Battle of Ramadi. Is that true? That's true. Cool. That's very true. Dang, Ed. They didn't pay me, though. They, just they didn't? So <laughs> no, did, they didn't. <laughs> did they take it away from you after the war? Yes, they did. Yes, they That's did. such bullshit, by the way. It's, I'm sorry. It's a crock of shit. I still think they should pay me. They owe me about... 20,000 bucks. <laughs> they should. You should petition for that. Call Trump. He'll get it for you. Yeah, exactly. Right. <laughs> well, man, it's nice to see you. Thanks so much for joining me today. Right on, man. Good to be here. Yeah. I know there's a ton of stuff like recent that you want to talk about, but of course, everyone wants to hear some of the earlier stuff. Like what was your childhood like? Where did you grow up and why did you end up, you know, standing on the grinder at Bud's and whatever class you were in? So let's talk about some of that stuff first before we talk about your book and some of the work you're doing today. So why don't we do that? What was early Ed like? Well, let's see. I was born in, in, uh, in Blue Ridge, Virginia, in the mountains, very you know, small little town. By the time I was about 13 years old, I had both my parents were gone. I lived with my grandmother. Wow. So I was a hustler. Luckily, I, I became a very good athlete. I got a, made varsity baseball as a freshman in high school. I was a three sports guy. When I made player of the year, state of Virginia, I got a scholarship to Virginia Commonwealth University, which 
changed my trajectory, you know, because my trajectory from where I came from could have went south real quick. All the people around me, all the influence around me. So, yeah, so I ended up getting a baseball scholarship. I was coming out of college. I played four years as a starter, didn't get drafted like I thought I was. I had the uh, slow foot disease. (laughs) 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 I could hit and throw a little bit, but I I just I couldn't run that well. As an outfielder, you have to run or be able to really slug. So I was going to be a stockbroker of all things. I happened to be in Virginia Beach on Christmas break with a friend of mine who was based one of my baseball player buddies. And his dad had retired from his job and took a like a part-time job living on a like a storage unit area on a little house just managing the storage unit. His dad was like a people person, like the mayor of Virginia Beach. And uh, Tom and I, my friend, we'd been out all night, we're passed out on the floor, and his dad drags us up and is like, Hey man, this lady, it was like nineteen ninety. This lady needs help. Her husband is on a ship in the Gulf. And she's got three little kids. She's dragging kids around. And uh, she got evicted from her place and she needs to get out now. So my friend and I, Tom, got her a truck, got her some boxes, went to a house and started to pack it up. And on the first load over to the storage unit, I ran into a guy. We were just happened to be unloading stuff and talking to me. And he goes, I'm on leave, man. I'm in the Navy. I'll help you guys out. And we spent about 24 hours moving this lady's stuff. He happened to be a SEAL. The next day after we slept, after that uh, moving, I actually hitchhiked back to Richmond where I was staying and uh, signed up. No shit. <laughs> Enlisted, baby. You spent right. 24 hours in the Navy SEAL and you'll find yourself in the Navy. That was it. It was just, it clicked. I'm like, that's it. So, that's wild. Who was that guy? Man, I've been on our Facebook page at 5326. His name, I thought, was Mark. I couldn't figure out his last name. And I probed everybody on that list. I found a couple guys, but it, it wasn't them. It's hilarious. I, Interesting. I the one guy who got you into the SEALs and you can't, you know. So if he's listening, man, he had a big scar on his stomach. I remember that. It was a big buffed up dude. So if he's listening and he's from Pittsburgh. So <laughs> so what buds class did you end up in? You know, the last hard one, of course. Uh, 189. Of course. 189. That was first 19, time. That was time 19 made. after me. That was <laughs> making me feel old. Holy shit. 1980. So 1990, what? Two Three. or something? 93? 93. All right. What were your biggest ahas? Or what was like the one thing at Bud's that you, you've always carried with you and said, you know what, I'm glad I learned that? I think Hell Week for all of us is a week of just, you know, no shit. <laughs> yeah. I can do about any damn thing moment. I had some, you know, obviously we all had good instructors. And I think them, some of the instructors anchoring those beliefs in you when you just, you look around, everybody else is miserable. You're like, man, I feel pretty good. <laughs> you know, like, talk, everybody says I'm full of shit when they say, because I'll tell them I never thought about quitting because I didn't have plan B. I was a poor kid. I had two trash bags full of clothes when I left college, right? I didn't have anything. There was no plan B. So my yeah. focus was on plan A and going forward with it. You didn't and have most- to burn your boats because you didn't have any boats to burn. Uh-uh. Uh, no, so no bridges behind me either. I was done. I mean, I just looked around. I'm like, wow, I kind of realized if I'm doing all right and these people are suffering that bad, I must be pretty hard. So it didn't bother me. I, but I think Hell Week, once you make it through Hell Week, that's a moment you go, okay, I'm capable of a lot, you know, yeah. 20 times more than I ever thought possible, you know? Yeah. In fact, you nailed it right there. I've used that 20X in okay. my teachings now. And I think I had a, when I was sitting, getting ready for Hell Week, because I was sitting on the berm, taking some alone time. I remember, I don't remember who it was. I wish I, it's another one of those things. I wish I remember the instructor's name, but kind of came up over the berm. He saw me sitting there. He kind of appreciated what I was doing. You know what I mean? Everyone else is like, scurrying like a little cockroach in their little fear base. And I was just sitting there kind of staring at the ocean and just getting ready mentally. Yeah. And he said, Mark, don't worry about this thing. You're capable 20 times more than you think you are. And wow. Like, he must've passed that down because somehow I've heard yeah. that. <laughs> yeah, I know. Yeah. 
Right. And, uh, and so I, that stayed with me. And so we, you know, that's kind of a core thing. And a lot of people don't realize this listening, but hell week is really not about training. It's about the test. Oh yeah. You know what I mean? There's a lot of training that goes on before and after hell week, hell week. You're not doing anything special. You know what I mean? You're just carrying freaking logs around in boats and you're surviving. So it's a test. Yeah. You know, yeah you're digging anything new, except maybe a new way to be a sand cookie or something like that. That's cool. So, um, where'd you go after your bu- buds? Well, I say I, uh, Went to SEAL Team 4. They had two platoons at SEAL Team 4. Because remember back in the, you know, in the ni- early 90s, that was SEAL Team 4 was like the dream yeah, team. It was the dream team. team. Yeah, not, yeah everybody Spanish. wanted to go to South America. You get to go to South America, fight the drug war. Yeah, yeah, it was, it was cool. So I did the two platoons there. And somehow I, I applied to officer candidate school. And, you know, at the time, the SEAL teams are so small. Now they're gigantic compared to when we were active. Yeah. There were only two slots per year for one West Coast, one East Coast, and I got the East Coast one. So took it, you know, it's a pretty good gig. And I went West Coast and I became, uh, went to SEAL Team 5, which I think is my favorite team. SEAL Team 5 were the real pipe swingers from, you know, I was at Team 3. So you had Team 1, which were kind of like the straight and narrow guys. Team 3 is somewhere yeah. in between. Team 5 were the, the knuckle dragger pipe swingers. Everyone back then was already all tatted up at Team 5. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and most of them ended up in my platoons, I think. <laughs> so I, I learned hard, tap dance really hard. well. Things changed quite a bit. You know, I, I got off active duty in 97, late 96, 97. I stayed in the reserves. I didn't see any action until as a reservist, I got mobilized as lieutenant commander to go to Iraq. And by then I was never going to kick down a door or do anything cool again. I was on staff, but you were still in the thick of it. So talk about that transition. Yeah. Like what were you doing on 9-11 and how did that kind of play out for you? I just came back from a deployment. I went to Bud's as a third phase officer about five months before 9-11 happened. 9-11 happened. And uh, if you know Tom Dietz, oh, yeah. he was still still Team 5 CEO. Yeah. And uh, we had put together a plan. I was going back to be a troop commander for the old boys. So everybody's still banded together. And we'd kind of put a workout plan together to be the first surgeon to Afghanistan. I remember Tom came to me. He's like, man, Ed, don't worry about it. It's going to be a marathon, not a sprint. Little did we know it was going to be a Goddamn ultra marathon. You know, we all at Buds, I don't, Rick uh, Smethers was a commanding officer then, which I think was probably one of the best leaders I've ever worked for. Yeah. Very quiet man. He got us all together. He understood that everybody's chomping at the bit to get down range, right? I mean, that's if you're not chomping at the bit, then you're in the wrong profession. Yeah, he kind of brought us all together and kind of put it in perspective what we're doing and while we're teaching Bud students and all that. And, uh, and I was lucky enough, uh, Rick thought enough of me, I got the uh, billet to go to SBS, through the British SBS tour. Oh, cool. Nice. Yeah. So I just went in as a door kicker. They didn't carry the way. <laughs> Did you go to Iraq with the SBS? Yeah, I went the first time in 04, then I was in there in 05, and then 06. Yeah, so I went with those guys. Uh, unique experience. <laughs> what was different about how they operate or their mindset or attitude than the SEALs? Well, the first is, which some of the things I liked about the Brits, and I love them if they're listening, you know, I do love you. By the way, SBS is Special Boat Service. Special Boat. It's like yeah. the SEAL equivalent to SAS, which is the Special Air Service, which yeah. is like their Green Berets, I guess you call it. Maybe. Yeah, it's a Delta versus SEAL team, kind of. SAS, Delta. All their training, their selection course. Like BUDS is team-oriented for the most part. SBS stuff, the hill climbs and all those the, in the jungle phase is 100% individual. There's no talking. There's no coaching. There's nothing. So they have a strong sense of individual effort. But the team ability, if you will, was lacking a lot. It was very unique. You know, it was just like we had, you know, sometimes some things on target went kind of astray and it was like 10 heads to the snake at times. Right. And it was different. And if you know the Brits, they're not the attention to detail as we are, like in planning and, you know, everybody in the SEAL teams, 
when you're planning, everybody's planning, right? right? There's not like some officer or some sergeant major or some master chief in our case, handing down a brief, and this is what you're going to do. That's how they do it. They basically, mm-hmm. as a sergeant major, first sergeant, whatever, hand down the brief, and everybody just sits there and takes the brief. So they don't really involve themselves in it, and they don't. It's more cavalier than we are, mm-hmm. but they're tough and they're courageous. There's no doubt about that. Yeah, no doubt. But you know, when you get on target, it's team toughness that really wins the day. It absolutely is. And everything's going well, everything's going well. But when it's not going well, you find out where the holes are, right? And where the seams of your plan are. We found those quite a bit. (laughs) I think that's really interesting. So let's like pin this idea of having everyone involved in the planning. Because this has, you know, there's a big lesson there for corporate leaders or any organization for that matter. any, Any elite performing team probably has some aspect of this or the, you know, even if it's an athletic team, the coach is engaging everyone in the plan and not just like it's not hierarchical anymore. It doesn't work in this day and age. Things no. are too complex, right? Yep. Too complex. And everybody wants ownership, right? That's a common term. People, uh, you got to have ownership. Well, ownership is when you're working on the plan with it. So, you know, now you're part of it. So you do own it. It makes a big difference in your mind. Right. Now, not only that, but it decreases anxiety. It decreases right. anxiety because you're taking action. Because you're taking action, because you feel like you're involved or, you know, that you've got some, some say in things. Yep. Furthermore, you know, Having a common, this is kind of my feeling on this in this thing, having a collective vision is really important. You know, things go sideways and become a shit show real fast. So if everyone has a different idea of what the objective is actually supposed to look like when yeah. you get toward the, you know, the meat and potatoes of the mission, right? And so when you plan together, you're engaged in imagery and visualizing and understanding and, you know, really like just at a very visceral or embodied level, you've got a sense for what this mission is going to go like if it goes well and, and what it looks like when it doesn't go well and you have those contingencies. But if you're all like a bunch of individuals and you have this plan and you're kind of checked out when you brief the plan, you might have 20 different guys with 20 different visions of what this victory looks like. Oh, yeah. I've, I've seen that part of it. <laughs> I wasn't fond of it. That part I didn't like very much at all. It's chaotic at times, but yeah, it worked out for us. Well, what did you learn from the SBS that you wouldn't have learned or how did you change in a way that you wouldn't have been had you not gone there? On a personal level, I mean, obviously, it's understanding different cultures, understanding how the world's, how different countries, because I truly live with them. Yeah, we've embedded with other countries and whatnot, but truly lived with them where I had an ID card, everything I did was British, right? Interesting. Yeah. So wherever we would go, no one in the room knew I was an American because I mostly didn't speak that much. So you'd hear their perspective on the the world and Mm -hmm. how they viewed America. Mm -hmm. That was pretty cool because you can hear you know, the prejudices, you know, because they viewed us as America with the big golden football, right? We Americans thought we're the best, you know, we're the best country in the world because we have this big football and we have this wealth. We have this big machine. That's how they saw it. Right? <laughs> uh, and I understand that. I mean, yeah, we do. we do. We have a lot of wealth and we have a big military and a strong military and we can, our expeditionary forces, we can mobilize anywhere at any right. time. Other forces really don't have that. We were the big brother that they resented a little bit sometimes. Yeah, yeah. So did that bring you some humility? It or? did. No, it really did. It changed the way I uh, viewed a lot of things. It made me appreciate America more too. And uh, yep. for what we were good at and uh, for the SEAL teams and how we functioned, how our, our attention to detail, how precise we were and how dedicated our people were, it really made me appreciate it. Yeah, that's really cool. So after that, then you went off. Did you um, become a troop commander? What was next for you? Okay. Yep, troop commander and then uh, 05 and 06. That's a Ramadi, you know, the, the Ramadi gig. That was re- during a big push. Were you over Always there through the with, spring. With Jocko. Well, Jocko was a team three. Yeah, he replaced us. They, we did about two-week overlap. Yeah, so we set that 
whole gig up. The push, the last final push down in the Malab District and downtown the stadium, that was happening in January when we were there. But the Marine Corps and the Battle Space Commander, Huck at the time, he didn't really want, nobody really wanted it to turn into another Fallujah, right? Mm -hmm. Because Fallujah was a mess. Everybody just destroyed a lot of things. So he didn't want that. So they kept bumping it and bumping it. They had that, you know, Jocko and those guys came over for that basically one month of just, you know, ass kicking in the streets. So, yeah, we had kind of carved it out. I think we were pretty much the first force that took on the FID mission with, with the intent of the FID mission, you know, because team guys were very reluctant to do that mission. First year or so, we started doing it. It's actually embed ourselves with foreigners. We took it and kind of ran with it. So I, I actually went to our, my boss and was like, hey, I want to take on the whole Iraqi force. We took on 1,500 Iraqis, not just right. the special forces we said yeah we like those but we're going to split our seals up and be a true force multiplier across the battle phase mm -hmm. that mission was tricky right it, it worked tricky. well if you know you could trust all the guys the iraqis or you know in afghanistan i i've talked to some team guys who you know were turned on by their own yeah forces we actually had a couple targets where the iraqis lost their mind against us and we were in buildings bunkered in <laughs> like having arguments because you know, one of our guys one time after we breached, blew the door off, stepped on a photograph. And that photograph happened to be a Quran verse. Oh he was God. standing on it. And one of the soldiers saw it and lost his fucking mind. I mean, he went crazy. And then we were in a standoff. And then the interpreters had to get out in the middle and kind of figure it out in the compound. Like, hey, man. So, <laughs> wow. And they had they had ADs. You know, one of the guys were going on target, <laughs> cracks off around with his AK, blows the guy's foot halfway off. Holy you know, shit. So, so we had to turn around. <laughs> So yeah, all kinds of weird stuff going on. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba -da -ba -ba -ba. What was the biggest um, leadership challenge that you had at that level as a troop commander in uh, combat? Uh, well, let's see. Besides I think dealing one of, with knuckleheads like that. <laughs> that was one thing, but the lack, because at the time, when I deployed, basically all the SEAL teams sat down. It was kind of a, a new deployment. We were supposed to go to Afghanistan, but Red Wings <laughs> happened, you know, the whole thing. That switched things up. General Casey sent a message, like, we need SEAL team to go to Ramadi. And as we got together for a powwow for a full day with both coasts trying to figure out what we, I left without a mission statement. <laughs> and it was basically, you go figure out the mission, which we did in about a week's time. We said, okay, this is what we, this is how we can influence the battle space so much. But it was uncharted ground. And all the naysayers, to be honest with you, inside of our community was probably one of the hardest parts. You know, we would get a lot of like, this nasty feedback. What are you doing? You know, there were a couple of times, and I hope they're listening. I had to go to Baghdad, almost got fired because uh, they thought I was taking too much risk. And I was doing things that were outside the SEAL, five principles of a SEAL operator. But the battle had changed and the war had changed. Like my, my idea was, well, we change, right? We can want to do all we want to do. But if that's the battlefield changes, we have to change with it. And, and then actually some of those naysayers came back a year later and sent me like a formal apology. Yeah, that's interesting. I, I have a connection to this story a little bit, if I could share. So I was off active duty at the time because you're talking about around 2006, right? Yep. Yeah. So I was off active duty, but I was still a reserve officer. But I was running, I started this website called NavySeal.com. And it was a 
you know, kind of like recruiting and helping team guys out or wannabes out. Sure. And I was, you know, part of the way I was driving content was kind of like write articles. And I'd hired this guy who was writing articles. And he said, hey, I want to interview you about, you know, the way spec ops are being deployed in Afghanistan. I was like, okay, you know, so we just called, we had a conversation and I too shared that belief. I was like, you know, I don't understand really what's going on. Granted, I'm not over there, but I don't understand because, you know, I was always taught that we operate at night and, you know, if, yep. they, if they know we're on target, we fucked up. And, <laughs> and here's seals operating in broad daylight and people are, you know, getting killed. This is after Mark Lee incident. Never in a million years did I think this guy was going to quote me. I thought we were just sharing information. So he quotes me in this article for oh, some geez. other magazine. And he actually uses my official rank. And the title of the oh. article was Burning Up Seals. And boy, did I fucking get called in the carpet. Oh, God, I bet. Holy shit. I was I stand, within 24 hours of standing in front of Captain Heinz, just reaming me a new you-know-what. And I'm sitting there going, how did I get myself into this? And I was PNG for a while amongst the, you know, yeah. and everywhere I looked, I imagined, you know, darts coming out of the team guys' <laughs> you know, eyes at me. I'm like, holy shit, how did I fuck up that bad? It taught me a big lesson about dealing with the media and trust and, you know, being really careful about making sure that, you know, you know who you're talking to and they're going to represent yeah. you. you know? I agree. But, but that mission was confusing. I, mean, I didn't do any to patrol the contact. I didn't do that stuff. We did do mission VAs at daytime and we took a lot of Iraqis. The big beef in the community time for me was we were taking Iraqis. That many Iraqis are like, what are you doing, man? And like, well, that's the mission, dude. That's what we have to do. And well, before I left, we'd, we'd split just, you know, 30 SEALs. We split them off into three battalions. So there was an E6 and three dudes running each battalion. We had a special forces, that they had scout teams. So we had, you know, low-level SEALs running hundreds of, of people on missions. At the end, the last few months, we were doing four missions a night. No shit. It was just too much. We were pan- handing off missions to people. SEAL Team 6 would come over. We're like, here, dude, hit all you can hit. Because we, we had built the best, uh, kind of ironic, and I, I don't know if I want to say it, but it's kind of we built the best source network that right. you can feasibly build off a person we accidentally shot. Oh, wow. And I ended up calling the medevac in for him, saved his life. He became the best source we had. And he recruited so many people until he was called, tortured, and killed. Oh, man. But we we created such a network that it was just flowing. Yep. And we lost no one and no one got wounded. Well, that's a huge credit right there. Yep. Tell you what, that would be, you know, as a leader, that would be challenging to go into combat and not bring your troops home. And I know everyone who's been to yep. combat, you know, that's a, it's a miracle and it's not your fault if it happens, but man. You know, actually scared me more than not getting hurt is uh, the failure, you know, like it's, history would judge you very harshly. You look back at Grenada or Panama and history really hammers those people. It depends, you know, you, when you're in the moment, you're in the trees, man, you're not seeing everything and you have to make those decisions and you have, people have to trust you and you have to trust them and you make the best decision you can make. And it's, there was a hard decisions and uh, we're just, you know, I'm thankful we didn't have any, any casualties. So. Yeah. Hindsight is 2020 and you know, yeah. nobody should be second guessing unless there's outright criminal behavior. Yeah. That's like the, the, why that whole Eddie Gallagher thing was also very challenging to kind of sift through. I did see it seems like some team guys fell on their sword for him. And it looked like some others actually went out of their way to try to do him harm. So it's just rare that you have that kind of polarization within it is rare. the ranks, you know? Yeah. So that was kind of interesting. And I think that's a, a unique thing about what's going on today, even in the SEALs and all, all the military. It's like this, it's kind of reflecting the polarization of 
of what's happened in our society, you know, being led by politics and the media, you know? And so this seems like to me, like there's this concerted effort to drive wedges between us and yeah. that, you know, the SEALs who are such a tight group are not immune to that. Yeah. I, I would say we struggle to, for our own ethos, right? We struggle to live up their own ethos. Everyone does. And I think the strain of combat, especially the people that were at the tip of the spear for a very, very long time, we know guys with 15 combat deployments, you know, that's a lot of time. So my question was with the commanders, okay, like, you know, if you're a boxer, if you're a fault, it's important to have a man in your corner, right? Yeah. And not just give you technique, but to throw that towel in when you're done. Mm-hmm. And there were a lot of guys in the community, in the special forces community, no one ever threw the towel in. They were cooked. You know, they kept going and doing the same, going downrange, downrange, downrange. And we, as a community, special operations command, not just SEALs, but never said no. Every mission came up, hey, Djibouti, boom, yes, we'll do that. We'll do this. We'll go to the Philippines. We'll, you know, we were at times when I was a training officer, Guys would come back from a six or eight month deployment, take three weeks off and go over to, you know, dev group for a four month deployment, come back and start over. So it was just a big cycle. Like, you know, when is enough enough? And we didn't have leadership saying we have to prioritize and actually use our forces effectively because it's hard to do that. Right. It's hard to tell your boss. No. And I think that's what happened to us in Afghanistan because I worked with the Afghan commandos. I was embedded with those. And they were the premier force. And I can tell you, every report we sent up said, hey, they're okay. But when we leave, they're done. They don't trust their, quote, leadership. They trust Americans because they see Americans will fight for them and do stuff for them and provide for them and, you know, make sure they eat and have a place to sleep. But their own forces wouldn't do that. So that, that was a big, big lie that went up that chain of command. You know, it's like a turd going up the hill, man. It gets polished. And when it finally gets to the Pentagon, it's beautiful. <laughs> That's a beautiful turd. Yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah, that was predictable. That's fascinating. And all of us. Matter of fact, I was on a national TV show and the host asked me, it was like a a month or two months right before the whole pullout. She asked me, she said, what do you think is going to happen when we start to pull out of Afghanistan? I don't think anything. I know what's going to happen. They're going to collapse around us. Yeah. And I went back on the show and was like, I told you so. so. (laughs) To me, it's such an unfortunate lack of wisdom, right, that's being displayed. Because, you know, I look at that and if I was president for a day or a week or a month even the solution for that was pretty easy fucking declare victory by virtue of what we did for the women of afghanistan kids we brought the kids hundreds of thousands of people over here what we did for humankind in afghanistan was a victory and we're going to leave three thousand people over there to preserve the rights of the women and children and that would have been an absolute no-brainer everyone would lined up behind it and they didn't have the wisdom to see through that to see that solution. Well, politics confuses people, right? Politics right. becomes your own, it's the master in itself. That's right. And it's not right and wrong. Yeah. I mean, I tell all the veterans out there, we talk a lot, a lot of people are struggling with it. Like, dude, look at the hundreds of thousands of people, these little kids that I've met a few of them that live here that were immigrants from Afghanistan that we got over here. I mean, they have a wonderful life. They live in America and they have the dreams of, of kids. That's what we did. We gave more rights to people in the military than anyone in my history that I, I can think of. Yeah. Like my hope is that since there was 20 years of that, that we influenced that generation enough, both the women and all the kids that as they evolve and have that memory, you know, that they'll come together and they'll force change on the, you know, whoever ends up running that country, whether it's the Taliban or the Chinese. (laughs) Yeah. Right. Yeah. They got a taste of it and they can't untaste that. That's right. You can't unsee things. No. It's like an ayahuasca journey or something. You can't unsee that shit. <laughs> well, no, I don't know anything about that. No, no, of course you don't. <laughs> awesome. All right. So let's talk about guts. It's the name of your yep. book, right? It is. 
The second so, one. The second one. Well, what, what was your first one? First, fast, and fearless. Right on. Okay. First, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. So I remember that. We've been trying to connect for a while, haven't we? Yeah. Sorry about that. No worries. <laughs> so first, fast, and fearless, was that about your kind of experiences as a team guy and some lessons learned? It's really mindset. It's about manufacturing motivation, how to deal with fear. With the publisher, I was on another path, but I pulled back off that path and I kind of wanted to write this path. And I'll be, you know, frank up front, 2016, I'd already retired four years earlier. I thought I was good to go, sort of. I'd started having some serious issues, personal like issues. Like, Join the club, man. It's not uncommon at all. All spec ops guys have TBI at some oh, level. And- oh, oh yeah. I was hearing voices and seeing things at night. So I was like, okay, I was struggling a little bit too. I really just kind of like, hey, I got to get back to what I did naturally or through most of my life when I was the happiest. Because, you know, in the teams, I was, I remember I was a happy, happy guy. Even most people would think, well, that's your job's miserable, but it's miserably good, right? I mean, it's yeah, just you're, you're sharing misery with other guys. And so it's, yeah, end up yeah. Being and worse. it's, you see the purpose and what you're doing, you know, right. and, and so that it kind of started with that. I was like, okay, breaking apart the things I did. Cause I was a, before I left, I was a training officer at the center. And I'd been a group training officer. So basically things I did were tactical stuff for nine troops and then, or nine deployments and then two times as a training officer. Right. So I kind of, we had a training meeting when I was there and it was in 2010 or something, San Clemente Island, right? And we were trying to break down buds, for instance, and had like 50 or 60 people from the community, even some, uh, what's, uh, God, I'll think of it in a second, Master Chief, uh, famous from back in the Vietnam. But we tried to figure out what evolution, every evolution that we did and why we did it. Mm-hmm. And no one could agree. <laughs> we had no <laughs> idea. It's scary. People might think this is scary, but we didn't have a collective clue. We knew how to make the soup, but we didn't know how to make it. So, to me, I kind of extracted a lot of things from that. You know, why we do what we do. And most SEALs can't tell you that. They just well, that's what we do. We've been doing it for this many years. Like, okay. We know so that it works. <laughs> we know that it works. That's right. But, well, if we got to pull some strings, then what does it affect? And that was what I was trying to figure out. So a lot of the things I brought forth in this was those type of ideas and concepts that we were built into the program that most SEALs didn't even know. That's fascinating. So you've got an idea for a business, the store of your dreams. There's just one thing to figure out, everything. That's why Shopify's all-in-one commerce platform makes it easy to sell online, in person, and everywhere else. Sell on social media, source products with an app to get that first sale feeling. It's the only solution that gives you everything you need to sell everywhere you want. So when you're ready to bring your idea to life, power it up with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com listen. <laughs> so let's double click on fear. What is it about fear that is both positive, you know, that can be a motivator? And how do we eradicate, you know, the debilitating effects of fear from your perspective? Well, the awfulizing, right? I call it the ruminating, right? Because fear tells you the event's not happening, right? If you fear a lion eating you, well, usually you're not in the fear for a moment. The human mind goes right to fearful stuff, right? We watch the news. We, everything is about fear, negative based. It's just a natural default. And we start to ruminate. And if you can't control your focus, right? And that's, I know you, you guys meditate a lot and so do I, is if you can't control that focus, you can't be in a stressful combat zone. You'll fall apart. And I've seen guys, I had a guy from my troop, not a SEAL, just mentally collapsed. He never left the wire. He never went outside the compound because he was ruminating the whole time. And wow. you know, for that, you mentioned earlier is take action. Right. Mm-hmm. So we are always in combat or in a stressful situation. You're always taking action. You're not setting back on the defense. You're always on the offense. That's right. You know, the cause of the effect, not the effect that was caused. And that's a very important thing to learn to focus on what you're doing at the moment. 
and always take action because in your mind, some of that ruminating becomes reality, right? Because your mind sometimes doesn't know the difference between a mental rehearsal, like if you're shadow boxing, you know, it doesn't know the difference at all. Right. So you build the neural pathways the same way. Negativity does the same thing. You can have the same practice in your mind, good or bad. You know, that's, I think for fear though, we have that tendency to ruminate and allow our mind just to go into that mode. And this, you know, tying that to kind of offense versus defense. If you're ruminating, it means you're sitting back and you're in defense, you're waiting to be acted upon, like you said. But when you have that offensive mindset, you're the cause of the effect and you have that bias toward action, then you're creating the conditions to learn more, to move toward, you know, the enemy, toward the threat. Yep. And now that the universe is reacting to you, the enemy is reacting to you. Yeah. And and you're always, you can always maintain the momentum in that regard. The more momentum you have, the less fear. A lot easier to fight on your toes than your heels, I think. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. Awesome. So how did you get through this potential life-altering breakdown? And we've had a couple teammates commit suicide. It's a debilitating issue, you know? Yeah, well, I've had uh, two in one platoon do it. No shit. Yeah, six months apart. Well, I mean, to me, just going back to doing those things, the basic things, yeah. It sounds silly, but, you know, taking care of physicality, right? Getting physical, getting outdoors to the physical world, eating well and sleeping. The yeah, chassis a big one. and controlling your mind. And I mean, controlling it like meditation. I love the fact that you guys, you really push into meditation because yeah. controlling the mind is very important, I think, and to be a great operator, to be a person that lives their life in the moment. But I just went back to those things. You know, mm-hmm. I got outside, I got nutrition, I ran, I was running. I mean, because running is my thing, even though I'm a big guy, I was running about 150, 200 miles a month. Holy shit. And I was shaking. I figured if I'm going to have bad feelings and all these weird things going on in my brain, if it's going to follow me, it's going to be exhausted when it gets there, right? <laughs> so, I just used it. Because, you know, when you're exhausted, it's hard to be in, a, in this fight or flight mode. Yeah, um, running is and, awesome. And I, I, I really got to control my diet and uh, my sleep. I went very offensive with the sleep. I just went back to what I did before. You know, you got to get the group dynamic. You got to be around people. You have to have purpose. Because when I did this, I used to do a lot of business consulting and I was doing a lot of that. And I actually completely switched. I mean, I still do speaking gigs and stuff like that. but. I switched and now I work with foster juvenile and kids, uh, homeless and kids of color. Nice. Yeah, I'm, a, I'm approved credit for the San Diego County of Office of Education in the juvenile court system, which is hard to do. <laughs> but yeah, so I, I teach mental toughness. I'm working a program, me and my partner, I work in a program with Lennar Construction and Homemade, which is a, a national organization. We're going to have a pilot course in January, six-week course or four-week course. They're still figuring it out. They're going to get people off the street, train them in construction, give them trades and get them employed. No and sure. I have the first two out of four or six weeks. I love that. Yeah. We call it in my website, it's called myphd.me, <laughs> which is, <laughs> it's just getting cranked up right now, but it's to get a PhD in themselves is probably the most important thing to be able to understand themselves and then understand the world. You know, hearing stories like this is what gives me hope and really believes in an optimistic future in spite of all the bullshit and negativity. <laughs> yeah. Because it's, we're starting to take action because we realize the government has failed. You know what I mean? How much money has gone into trying to solve this issue and which has done nothing, you know, homelessness no. and juvenile delinquency and or not delinquency, but, you know, whatever. Yeah. Everything that goes into that. So the yep. more money the government throws in it, the worse it seems to get. That's so right. Now we've got a couple of private corporations and, and an individual like you. This is happening all over the place yep. where individuals and nonprofits are saying, OK, screw it. We can't wait any longer. We're going to solve global warming. We're going to solve, you know, homeless social entrepreneurship. I think social that's the way ahead. They're going to solve problems, you know, and the government bureaucracy just can't and won't do it. 
and we can't outsource it to government. Government's got no heart, no soul. You know? No, but they, they keep wanting to take more and more of our money. So <laughs> they keep wanting to do that and people allow them. You can't undo that. It's like a that ratchet, man. Once you tighten yeah. it down, it stays tight. It you don't tight. undo government programs. It's hard. No, it's really hard. That's fascinating. All right. So shift fire. And we got to kind of wrap up pretty soon. Yeah. So I promised you 45 minutes. So your new book, Guts, talk about that a bit. And um, what are the major uh, insights that you're going to teach people on that? Well, a lot of the stuff, it'll be just about learning that PhD in me, you know, okay. about yourself, about understanding how to control your focus. There's a lot of how-to books out there, but nobody, everybody's like, well, discipline's a very important thing. Okay. But if I can't get my ass off the couch, <laughs> how do I get some of that discipline, right? And I call it the blue-collar scholar approach. And I approach everything in this manner with some science, but with how do you turn the damn wrench, right? If I want to teach people accountability, right? And budge st- instructors never really even figured this out. But I was like, how do we teach accountability to budge students? It's a simple, simple control of language, right? If you ask them a question, they get two answers and one excuse. The answers are, did you get something done? Yes, no. And then the excuse is, I fucked up. So, <laughs> and that excuse, and it's a joke of this excuse, but it starts to break that belief. It starts to separate that belief and that with failure. You create a distance between them. And then you'll see the students around hell week time or after hell week get really innovative. Mm-hmm. They don't go to an excuse automatically. And it's just by language. They go right to solving the problem because they realize we don't care about your excuses, right? The mission doesn't care. The nation doesn't care. History doesn't care. So you have to break your relationship with those damn excuses. So that's how we create that accountability for this one. Mm-hmm. And uh, just through language, right? Your language, how to use certain words. There's taboo words out there that trigger emotional response. I remember, you remember Chief Jaco? <laughs> oh, yeah. He's probably I listening. I wrote about him in the first book. I didn't think he did anything but curse. <laughs> but I, I would never forget the stuff he would, I remember that one time that he's like, and I'm jackhammering on a berm, it's hell week, and I'm just wet, and it's like 40 degrees outside, the wind's blowing. And he's like, man, you are one hard motherfucker. And that was like, boom, cold yeah. chills. I still get cold chills. And he's like, hit the fucking surf. And I was like, boom. But he anchored that belief into me that even now, if I say, who y'all motherfucker, (laughs) you know, I still get cold chills. Jayco comes up. Yeah. Yeah. So I try to go about it or do go about it in those ways of trying to actually turn the screws. How do you turn the screws when you can't get off the couch? Yeah. The how to's. That's pretty cool. Jayco, I did a 30 day scar. You remember scars? I was the 30 day instructor myself. Were you? I did it when it was combative, so it was 95, so it was it, So it already fighting. shifted from scars, yeah. 30, I told people, that's the hardest course I've ever done, 300-hour course. Me too. I lost like 20 pounds. Dude. We fought 10 hours a day for 30 days 30 straight. 30 days straight. Your knuckles are swollen up. Your ribs are busted. <laughs> oh, did you do the berm stuck. drills where you just go up and down the berm, just oh. beating the shit out of each other? And went after I did, well, I did mine on the East Coast because we had that right. big, huge Mount Silly thing. It was oh, that's right. awful. That was brutal, man. <laughs> It was brutal. Well, man, this has been a great conversation. I really appreciate you and the work you're doing and your time today. Where can people find out more about you, your books, your work? Yeah, just go on edhunter.com or myphd.me is going to be our educational website. It's up right now, but it's still, we're working on the process of it. Yeah, please go on edhunter.com or anywhere you can find books, you can find mine. Hopefully, I got a gig going. Hopefully, I'll be with doing a gig with Tony Robbins in February. Oh, no kidding. Yeah, he, he endorsed me. So awesome. he, yeah, I might be on one of his UPW or whatever programs. Yeah, good for you. Yeah, I did the um, Wealth Mastery for him, standing in front of 4,000 people. It's not like, you know, 100,000, but it was pretty cool. Dude. And 20-minute presentation, they said it was the best they'd ever had. And, you know, it's just Sweet. great stuff. He's doing good work. He's got oh. incredible leverage. So good luck with that. That's awesome. 
Yeah, cool. I appreciate that, man. All right, buddy. Super good to meet you. Well, you too, man. So go check out Ed at edheiner, H-I-N-E-R dot com and uh, myphd.me. That's awesome, by the way. Yeah. Great URL. (laughs) And check out his book, Guts. And your first one name was? uh, First Fast Fearless. First Fast Fearless. Great title. Yeah. Wow. What a great interview. What an incredible guy. Thank you so much, Ed Heiner. So Ed's the author of a book called Guts, also First, Fast, and Fearless. He got into the SEALs, literally within 24 hours of meeting his first Navy SEAL, he's at the recruiter's office and signing up. What a story. He went with nothing. And so he had no plan B at Bud's. And so interestingly enough, we have this in common. He actually had fun at Bud's. Fascinating. We learn his... um, the leadership lessons he learned with the special boat squadron, the UK's elite kind of equivalent to the SEALs. And then he went on to be a true commander in Iraq and Afghanistan. And we learned how, you know, we really rewrote the rules and came up with new ways of operating where they were embedding themselves in a mission called Foreign Internal Defense or FID, where they would take small groups of their large team and embed them with groups of up to 1,500 Iraqi militaries to, you know, help them meet their missions. Very controversial mission, and it was very successful. We talked about a little bit about how you teach mental toughness and accountability. I love this idea of breaking the relationship with excuses and using language really to overcome resistance, just getting off the couch and starting, right? Because it's really easy, you know, if you're already disciplined, but how do you discipline, you know, someone who's been sitting on the couch or who came from nothing? And so we really use language to develop kind of an offensive, go get it, stay on your toes instead of your heels mindset and learning to turn the screws incrementally toward uh, motivation and self-confidence. For more information on Ed, you can check him out at edheiner.com or myphd.me. Also, quick announcement, we will be making some changes to the podcast. We'll be renaming it. We've uh, hired a new producer, heading on to a new platform, really making a push to really up-level it, 10 exit, maybe even 20 exit in the next year, year and a half. Those will be fully rolled out by February. We launched the new markdivine.com website, but you'll see some changes soon. Come on back next time. If you like this content, you like the type of people we talk to, look forward to some changes and some um, more and more incredible people like Ed to have conversations about things that are important to all of us. I hope you enjoyed the show, folks. Thanks again for your support. And we'll see you next time. Divine out. Booyah. Okay, here's the situation. Our daughter Mia is leaving for her first sleepover. We have friends coming to stay, and we just got a puppy. So I go on Instacart and solve everything in one order from Kohl's. Fun PJs for Mia. Oh, new bedding for the guest room. And a vacuum cleaner that actually picks up pet hair. All delivered in as fast as 30 minutes. With Kohl's on Instacart, there's no such we can't fix. Visit instacart.com to get free delivery on your first three orders. Offer valid for a limited time. $10 minimum order. Additional terms apply.